Welcome to Tribe Talk's exclusive podcast series in which we talk over multiple episodes with Dr. Daniel Gordis about the heart and soul of Israel as expressed through its history, culture, diverse and vibrant populations, and its innovations. Each 20-minute episode provides a deep understanding of Israel's complexities from the birth of Zionism to the present day. Dr. Gordis, Senior Vice President and Koret Distinguished Fellow at Shalem College in Israel, is the author of more than 10 books and is a widely read columnist in Israel and American media. TribeTalk.org is an information and resource hub for Jewish young adults. It's uniquely designed to give students the tools they need to wisely choose colleges and to address anti-Semitism and feel empowered in their Jewish identity from before they go off to college and through their college years and beyond. And now, Dr. Gordis. In our last segment, we covered the first intifada, the assassination of Yitzhak Rabin, the first major attempt at peace between Israel and the Palestinians, and the horrible end of that phase with the assassination of Israel's prime minister. And before we get to the second intifada and another major attempt to make peace between Israel and the Palestinians, just take a little bit of time to catch up in this segment on what's happening inside Israeli society. We've mentioned before that uh, women in Israel were always voting. There was never a period in which women could not vote in the Zionist Congress. Women were voting and running for office already in 1898 in the Second Zionist Congress. Women can't vote in Europe at that point. Women don't get to vote in France until the 1960s. Uh, but women have been running for office. Golda Meir will become prime minister. Later on, of course, in 1973 in the Yom Kippur War, we talked about her, we talked about her resignation. So women are making progress in Israeli society in a whole array of ways. And we've talked about the ways in which Mizrahim, Jews from the Levant, have also made tremendous progress. We talked about that really, especially with the rise of Menachem Begin to the prime ministership in 1977. We didn't talk a lot yet about the whole LGBTQ movement, which has never been as big a deal in Israel as it was, for example, in the United States because there was never so much to overcome. Israel, for example, never had a don't ask, don't tell policy. Israel never had a policy of not letting gay or lesbian soldiers be in the army, not letting gay or lesbian soldiers uh, be officers in the army. It was just a very different kind of an issue in Israel from what it was in other parts of the West. And not surprisingly, uh, Tel Aviv becomes recognized across the whole region uh, as one of the most hospitable cities certainly in the Middle East, which is a fairly low bar, but even around the world, uh, to the whole LGBTQ population. But that actually becomes even more of an issue. There are more gay pride parades as time is going on. So women have made progress. Mizrahim have made progress. Uh, the LGBTQ community is doing fine, not to say that there's no discrimination. Of course there is, uh, but it's nothing like what's going on in the States. There is a major change, though, with the rise of the Haredim, the ultra-Orthodox community, who you may recall were actually completely opposed to Zionism in the early days. We talked a long time before in a segment a long time ago about how the early ultra-Orthodox people in the, in the history of Zionism were opposed to Zionism. Their attitude was, God exiled us, God will bring us back when God wants us back, and it's forbidden for us to hurry the, 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 the progress of time. It's not to us to turn the clock's hands. The, clock, the hands of the clock will turn as they turn, um, and they really are completely anti-Zionist, certainly until the Holocaust. Now, once the Holocaust happens, and they have to leave Europe, those of them who survive and come to Israel, they still are in Israel very grudgingly. 
Little by little, they agree to participate in the political process. Little by little, their numbers begin to grow. Little by little, they begin to vote in elections and then begin to run in elections and then are willing not to be ministers, but to be deputy ministers. You can see a whole long history. We can't go into it in detail here, except to say that by the time we get to the era that we're in, the 1980s and the 1990s and so forth, the Haredim are a huge political force in Israel, in large measure because of the development of a party called Shas by Aryeh Deri, who is still very much involved in Israel's politics. Uh, but it's important to recognize that they are an important factor here because they don't really have a terribly deeply held position on foreign affairs. What they want is for their young men not to be drafted. They want funding of their schools. They want the public spaces in Israel to be respectful of Jewish law. They don't want buses running in public areas on Shabbat, etc., etc. But they'll join with labor on the left. They'll join with Likud on the right. Any party that will make those accommodations to them, they'll join with. But it becomes a very important thing for any party trying to win the premiership to be able to get along with the Haredim because to this day in Israel's history, no party has ever gotten more than half of the seats in the Knesset. So with the rise of the prominence of the ultra-Orthodox community in Israel, but there's another Jewish development also, which is critically important for us to understand, just because it's what Israel's all about. We've said time and again, you can't really understand America if all you do is talk about the War of Independence and the War of 1812 and the Civil War and the First World War and the Second War and so on and so forth, that's not America. If you want to understand America, you have to understand what Americans think, what Americans write, what they sing about, what their drama is about, and so on and so forth. And the same thing is true in Israel. It's important to talk about the peace process and its progress or its lack of progress, but Israel's conflicts are not what Israel is. What Israel really is, is a place where the Jewish people is being reborn. And that's what we really see happening in the last few decades in Israel. There's a real renaissance of interest in Jewish life. Why does that happen now? Well, it's a very complicated story, but to do it relatively briefly, there's a lot of reasons for it. One of them is, is that that hardcore anti-religious secularism of Israel's founding fathers has just kind of worn itself out. Uh, they came from the religious communities of Eastern Europe. They were rebelling against their parents or their grandparents. By the time you get to the 1970s or 1980s, the young Israelis are the grandchildren or the great-grandchildren or the great-great-grandchildren of uh, some of those people. They're not rebelling against anything. In fact, quite the opposite. They want in. They want to know, well, what's that whole conversation about? What are all those Jewish books about? I don't necessarily want to be observant, but I don't want to be blind and deaf to the music that was part of, of, Israeli, of, of Jewish life for a very long time. So the hardcore secularism begins to die. After the Yom Kippur War and its devastating losses, which we've talked about in a previous segment, Israelis really understand in a heartbreaking kind of a way, we are never going to be beyond the prospect of being attacked. We'll be stronger, we'll be less strong, we'll be more impregnable, we'll be less impregnable, but we're never going to be completely impregnable. If we're going to live in this country, we're going to live with danger, which leads to the question, so why am I here? I could go to Europe, I could go to America, I could go anywhere, so why am I staying here? And if I'm going to stay here, there has to be a reason. And at the end of the day, that reason has to be something Jewish. I mean, this is a Jewish state. 
Why am I serving in the army of the Jewish state? Why am I voting in the elections of the Jewish state? Why am I paying taxes to a Jewish state? Why does a Jewish state matter? To be able to answer that question, I need to know something about Judaism itself. And then we've mentioned the rise of the Mizrahim. The Mizrahim have a very different kind of theological approach than do the Europeans. Europeans, like Americans in a lot of ways, are very theologically rigorous and logical, so to speak. In other words, do you think that God commanded you to observe the commandments of Jewish life? If no, then fine. And if yes, if you really think God said to do it, well, then obviously you're going to do it. If you think that God said to observe Shabbat, you're not going to go to the beach in your car on Shabbat. It doesn't make any sense. You can't say, yes, I believe that God said that, but I still go to the beach. Well, the reality is that in the Mizrahi world, you can say that because their religious orientation is focused much more on reverence than it is on obedience. And obviously, this is a much more complicated subject than we can do justice now to. But there are lots and lots of Mizrahim who say, of course, I believe that there's a God. And of course, I believe that God gave us the Torah. And of course, I believe that the Torah says I cannot drive on Shabbat. And yes, I drive on Shabbat and I go to the beach. Why? Because that's how I live. My home is deeply Jewish. There's Shabbat candles. There's Kiddush. We go to shul. But I don't observe Shabbat. And my rabbi knows that. My rabbi doesn't chastise me. It's a very different way of thinking about Jewish religiosity. And the more Mizrahi make their way into the center of Israeli life and culture, the more Ashkenazim become exposed to that. And either explicitly or implicitly, they say to themselves, wow, there's another way of skinning this Jewish cat. There's another way of thinking about what Jewishness means. I could become part of the Jewish conversation without saying that I want to be religious and observant. I just might want to know this. I could even show reverence for the Jewish tradition without committing myself to doing every single thing that it says. So ironically, those very same Mizrahim that the Ashkenazim had cast to the side for so long, those Mizrahim actually liberate the Ashkenazim in a certain way, liberate them from a kind of a very regimented, rigid thinking about theology and God and commandments and make things much more fluid. And add to that, of course, the growing sadness in Israel because of the loss of the hope for peace. And you're going to want to dig deeper into your own tradition. You're going to want to search your tradition for hope, for meaning. And there's a kind of a yearning for Jewishness. And all of a sudden, people are going to study Jewish texts who are totally secular. There are lots of Israeli programs called Mechinot. It's a kind of a gap year program, which had never existed in Israel. Really, it kind of takes off mostly with the assassination of Rabin where religious kids and non-religious kids sometimes together will go off for a year before they go to the army and study. And there are programs for secular kids, and there's programs for religious kids. But a lot of kids are now going, spending a year before they get drafted, to think about Jewish issues, to read those great Zionist thinkers we've talked about, to learn a little bit of Israeli history, to read Bible, to read Mishnah, to read Talmud, and so on and so forth. And some of Israel's most interesting writers today have pointed to this great renaissance. Shmuel Rosner, who wrote a book not that long ago called Hashtag Israeli Judaism, it's been translated into English, talks about a kind of a new kind of Jewishness that blends Jewish religiosity and Jewish ritual with national Israeli ritual in a kind of a meaningful, fascinating way. Micha Goodman who is one of Israel's most important public intellectuals, probably in his 50s these days, 
has written six books, each one of which has been a bestseller. And his first books were about Maimonides, uh, the Kuzari by Rabbi Yehuda Halevi, Deuteronomy. In other words, when a book about Maimonides, when a book about the book of Deuteronomy become bestsellers, the Haredim are not buying his books. And there's not enough religious people who make up about 10, 15% of Israeli society to turn a book into a bestseller. A bestseller can only be a bestseller in Israel if the secular Jews are buying it. And they are, in fact, buying books about Maimonides and the Kuzari and Deuteronomy by the hundreds and by the thousands. And it's just part of an indication of that thirst for meaning and that thirst for thinking deeply about issues that Israelis once might have cast to the side, they're now thinking about more explicitly. I want to say one other thing really briefly about the kind of renaissance of Jewish thought which is to say that you can actually see a lot of soul-searching even in Israeli television. In the 1960s and the 1970s and the 1980s, Israel was not producing any television really worth its name. There were a couple of shows that were not so bad, but everybody wanted to watch American television. And those were the days before you could get it on the internet. People were bringing in cassettes and they were bringing in later on DVDs. It had to actually be brought in from America and people did it legally and not legally. And every Israeli wanted to see what was on American TV. Israelis are still very interested, obviously, in what's on American TV and what's on European TV and European shows of all different sorts. But Israel is also producing shows that are being watched across the world. Israel has now really entered the international economy of culture. And I'll just give you three examples of Israeli TV shows that have the world kind of interested in them. One which certainly has Jews around the world interested in it is Shtisel. Shtisel is a kind of a high-level soap opera about the Haredi community in Jerusalem, in Mea She'arim. And for those of you who haven't seen it, it's a kind of a, a, you know, a show about regular life. There's people in happy marriages and unhappy marriages. There's people who like their work. There's people who don't like their work. There are single people who wish they were married and married people who wish they were single. It's life. Uh, but it's a look at the Haredi world in a very sensitive, loving kind of a way. These Haredi characters are lovable, likable, huggable. You feel for them. You weep with them. And you could ask yourself, well, why in a world in which secular Israelis are so upset that the Haredim are getting more and more political power, that secular Israelis are being forced by virtue of coalition agreements to fund Haredi schools, where secular kids are going off to the army and looking in disgust at the fact that Haredi kids are not going to the army, why does Israel all of a sudden produce a really famous, very popular TV show which shows the Haredim in such really loving terms? And the answer is this. The answer is that yes, Israelis are opposed to a lot of the economic arrangements made with Haredi parties, and a lot of Israelis are in favor of what's called in Hebrew, Hebrew Shivyon Banetel, an equality in bearing the burden, an equality of going to the army, which the Haredim are not open to. There's a lot of resentment against the Haredim, but there are a lot of people in Tel Aviv working in very tall towers made out of steel and glass who go down their elevator at the end of the workday and get into their Audi or their Lexus and drive home to their very fancy house in Ramat Aviv Gimel. And they're really living the life and they have money, and they can travel, and they have nice clothes. They're not really wanting for anything. But they get home at the end of the day, and life feels kind of empty. What's it all really for? Why am I working so hard? 
How come this money doesn't make me feel happy? And when I look at these Haredim who have 10 children, 12 children, 14 children, and they live in poverty that they themselves have chosen, and they look happy. Why are they happy? What do they know that I don't know? What do they have that I don't have? I don't want to be like them, but increasingly Israelis are kind of curious about them. What's going on in that community that in the 21st century makes people want to live that way? And that's still really an ongoing curiosity in much of Israeli life, as people in Israel, like all over the world, look for meaning, ask themselves, what's my life really all about? There's another TV show that everybody talks about, which is Fauda, right? Which is about an Israeli counterterrorism undercover unit. And you could say that Fauda is, you know, is one of those cops and robbers shows and people are shooting each other up and blowing each other up. Fauda is much more than that. And if you've seen Fauda, you know that at a certain point, what becomes fascinating and troubling about Fauda is that it's actually not clear. Who's more insane? The terrorists? or the Israeli undercover unit that's supposed to get and kill the terrorists? Who does more outrageous things? Who's lost completely lost sight of their moral compass? It's not clear. And what the authors of Fauda were able to do, and it became a best-selling show in Israel, so Israelis were open to hearing this. They were able to ask the question, to survive in the jungle, do you have to become the jungle? Is there a way that we can survive in this region and not become like that? Now, Fado is at the end of the day just a TV show. It's not going to answer that question. But when it actually has you thinking, my God, all of these people are insane. And actually, all of these people are a little likable. Even the Arabs on the other side. What Fado has done is it's added a human dimension that Israelis are actually now willing to hear. You could not have produced Fado in the 1960s. You could have not produced Fada in the 1970s. You would have been called a traitor. Nobody would have watched it. We weren't ready, but we're ready for Shtisel to look kind of lovingly and longingly at the Haredi community. Uh, we're ready for Fada. Not to say that the terrorists are right and we're wrong, obviously, but to say there's people on the other side of the line. And we also, at times, cross all sorts of lines, and we can acknowledge that and talk about that. Now there's a brand new TV show, uh, which has been purchased by Apple TV and hasn't come out in English yet, but it's out in Hebrew already, which is called Tehran. And it's about a similar kind of a thing. Israel's going to try to take out Te Iran's nuclear project. But you meet Iranians who are not bad people. You meet Iranians who actually are decent human beings who really wish the Shah were back in power. They hate what the Islamic regime has done to their country. They would actually like to live in perfect peace with Israelis. And of course, there has to be the inevitable romance between an Israeli character and an Iranian character. And again, what the authors of this TV show say quite explicitly that they're trying to do is not to do moral equivalence here, but to show the humanity on both sides. That's a really new development in Israeli culture that I think is worth putting our fingers on. And the very last thing that I'll say at this stage is that in, in 2017, when the Man Booker International Prize was awarded, in other words, books from any country, any author, any language that have been translated into English, so the judges can read them, they announced the five finalists in 2017. Two of the five finalists were Israelis. They were David Grossman and Amos Oz. And the winner 
of the International Man Booker Prize was actually David Grossman for a very strange, painful, beautiful book called A Horse Walks Into a Bar. You've gotten to a point at the first part of the 21st century when in the entire planet, five people are picked to be finalists for one of the most prestigious literary awards in the world. 40% of the finalists come from a country the size of New Jersey. It's really kind of unbelievable what's happened to Israel culturally. And again, I think although we're going to come back in future segments to the conflict and to peace negotiations and so forth, critically important for us to remember that that's what Israel's really all about. Israel's not about war with Egypt or Jordan. Israel's not about conflict with the Palestinians. Israel is about the rebirth of the Jewish people. And by the beginning of the 21st century, it is unbelievably obvious and apparent that the rebirth of the Jewish people is exactly what's happening in the Jewish state. Thank you for joining us. We encourage you to listen to the next podcast in this series with Dr. Gordis and remind you to visit our website, tribetalk.org, for more resources.